Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this special episode of Anti Culture, the season finale of season two with Rachel Dolezal. My name is Josiah Sinanin, and likely this is a lot of your first time listening to the podcast. And I usually introduce myself as your culturally ambiguous host, which is true, but also seems quite fitting for this particular episode with Rachel. Whether you're listening for the first time or you're a loyal follower of the podcast, I really appreciate you joining me on my journey to make people feel loved and known and give everyone, even people I starkly disagree with, an opportunity to share their stories. I wanted to give you a bit of a background to my podcast, Anti-Culture, before we jump in. First off, for those of you who actually don't know who Rachel Dolezal is, maybe you do now in preparation for this episode, Rachel Dolezal legally now goes by the name Nkechi Diallo. She was born to two Caucasian parents and caused an uproar in 2015 that swept America when it was revealed she had been identifying herself as a black woman. At first, this story sounds very hard to comprehend, but until we ask questions and get to the deep root of the story, we can never understand Rachel as a human. And personally, as a journalist, I believe she's worthy to be understood as one. In the insert of her book, In Full Color, Rachel writes, In 2015, after footage of a small segment of an interview I did found its way onto the internet, and an article appeared in a local paper outing me as white, I became one of the hottest trending topics of the day, every day, for weeks. One of the few silver linings of the furor that followed my exposure is that it sparked an international debate about race and racial identity. Do I regret the way the interview ended? And as a consequence, the way my story was presented to the world, of course. But as you'll see, the evolution of my identity has been far too nuanced and frankly, private to share with a stranger. Rachel's story is so unique because no one at this time in history has experienced what she has so publicly. But I love what it says at the very bottom of her insert. It says, to truly understand someone, you need to hear her whole story. This is mine. I personally grew up in a mixed family myself, and I got very used to people playing the game of guess your nationality. So as a result, I decided I would take a deeper look at what cultural identity really meant. It all started with my home province of Alberta here in Canada, where I was well aware that some Albertans feel more Albertan than others. I definitely do identify myself proudly as Albertan. I was born and raised here. I love the province, I love how it's vast and naturally beautiful and for the most part very friendly. On my mom's side, I became familiar with the stereotypical Albertan that has come from the farm and has blessed their families with hard work and dedication. And on my dad's side, I became familiar with second and third generation Canadians, another big part of our province, who are just as proudly hardworking to make this place their home. Now, growing up, I personally never struggled to fit in with this mix. I could actually relate to a lot more people than the average Albertan. But I did wonder why some people felt stronger than others about their cultural identity because I often didn't feel like I had one. I couldn't just say I was one thing or another in a lot of situations, even though I felt like I could relate. I know many of you, like I said, are likely hearing the show for the first time. So thank you for tuning in to this special episode with Rachel Dolezal. Just to be candid, I've already received some criticism for my choice in seeking this guest, as many people feel like stories like this shouldn't be given another platform. 
But I think what we find in the situation with Rachel Dolezal and the torment she went through after being outed as a woman who was born white is actually an opportunity for really valuable social commentary for where we stand in our society in terms of race and cultural identity. This episode is definitely a risk for me, but I think it really fits into my goal with this podcast. But I don't have an extensive background on the full racial politics that unfold in the United States. I did watch Rachel's documentary on Netflix. If you haven't heard of it, it's called The Rachel Divide, and it attempted to show both sides of people's opinions on Rachel Dozal. And it got me to order her book, which is called In Full Color, Finding My Place in a Black and White World. And as I was reading this, I began to realize that she's just like everyone else, although perhaps more openly. And she's actually ended up creating a culture of her own And I just knew I had to talk to her and ask her some more questions because I figured that her experience might have some similarities to mine in a weird way. And I actually think we all create our own personal cultures within ourselves to some extent. We are always more than what our labels say we are. And I think we need to rethink how we are so quick to put people in those boxes here in North America. My first season, I did focus pretty much solely on Alberta and I asked the question, what makes you Albertan to a diverse group of people? I asked someone from a farming family. I asked someone from a nearby First Nations community that actually said they didn't identify as Albertan. I asked someone who is a Franco-Albertan, which is a minority in our province. And it actually became clearer and clearer to me that yes, there are things that make us Albertan, but the overarching story of who someone is goes a lot deeper. And maybe that is their true identity and their true culture. So this podcast is called Anti-Culture, not for the sake of being against culture, but more so because I want to reestablish the ideas and perceptions we have about what culture means in a society that's so multifaceted, like all society is here in North America. So instead of putting someone in a category like African American or Democrat or immigrated family or CEO, let's get to the bottom of who people really are and how they came to be who they are by asking questions and remembering the humanity we all hold. I think Rachel Dolezal is a perfect opportunity for that. In many ways, this very episode, which by the way is the finale of this second season, this is the crux of my heart for this series and I'm still in disbelief it even came together. A big push of inspiration for this season even came from Rachel Dolezal and watching that documentary and reading her book. And I just started noticing a very small amount of people publicly felt for her, and I wondered what her story might be, particularly intrigued by all her media features that were swarming everywhere you looked from 2015 until today. She's been on Dr. Phil, she had a piece in Vanity Fair, which by the way, she tells me in this interview was actually a bit of a setup. You may have seen her on Good Morning America. She's even been parodied on SNL. But behind it all, there is a person, and digging deeper into the story, you find out that it's a person who is fighting for justice for their family. She's raising a family of her own as a single mom currently, and for the second time in her life, she feels misunderstood by everyone and unaccepted by everyone after feeling like she finally defeated that part of her life after leaving her oppressive and racist childhood behind her. Now don't get me wrong, I definitely see the other side of the argument, and I wanted to know why this woman, Rachel Dolezal, thought she was black and thinks she is black, and how that even crossed her mind to begin with. 
And though there were some answers out there, I still wanted to know more unedited. And I definitely got my answers from doing this interview. And I'm really glad that this story intrigued me enough to actually press into this further and find the humanity and the understanding that is Rachel Dolezal. And actually at this point in time, after recording this interview with Rachel, I feel like for the first time I can understand a little bit more of her story. And my eyes have been opened to a lot of truth that I was missing the first time I heard it. I hope that listening to this will do the same for you and challenge your perceptions. So thank you for coming with me on this journey to end off this season of my podcast. Without further ado, here's my interview with the one, the only, Rachel Dolezal. Enjoy. I definitely want to be within the realm of respect. I don't want to do what (laughs) the journalists on your documentary seem to do. Please just tell me if I cross a line or if you don't want to talk about something and we'll move on. Okay. Well, the reason why I got into contact with you was after watching your Netflix documentary and ordering your book. It really inspired me to check out your book because I think it was, it's the first time you really talked about your story and So I just wanted to ask, like, were you happy with how the documentary turned out? Do you think that you were able to share your story in the way that you wanted to? Um, well, yeah, I, I guess, um, so my book came out in, in 2017 and I was really disappointed with the reception of my book just because I had hoped that by writing it, it would, um, you know, really give people insight into the full story, and I, I had hoped that people would read that. Yeah. Um, for you know, for that purpose, people that really wanted to know, and it, and it kind of turned out that it seemed like a lot of people were not wanting to actually know my story. They just had already made their minds up, and right. so they were happy with their own conclusions based on the media. Hmm. But the do- so the documentary coming out, I think, maybe turned a few people towards my book that wouldn't have otherwise right. you know, maybe checked it out, just, which is good. As far as the documentary itself, <laughs> um, I, you know, our whole family, meaning me and my kids and my sister, yeah, um, just, you know, weren't super stoked about the documentary just because we didn't have any control over it. Yeah. Um, we kind of signed up for the process thinking it would be just a neutral objective, third party, um, piece you know like a documentary is yeah and it really just like everything else um including the book release interviews and including all the work that I've tried to do since June of 2015 got kind of um influenced by the controversy like influenced or pressured to lean into the opposition right and instead of leaning into just the actual human story, um, yeah, they were scared of backlash, meaning the director and even Netflix, you know, really got um, kind of scared of um, PR sticky hmm. <laughs> um, spots or whatever. So they wanted to make an extra effort to not be pro-Rachel. In other right. words, you know, like they wanted to highlight the opposition, 
you know, almost to a fault so that, so that they wouldn't have that criticism that they weren't, that they didn't give voice to, um, people who had something to say against me. So, you know, I really felt like it became not the racial divide, but like racial versus the world. It really didn't show the divide as far as there's a lot of support, you know, and it just, they cut like more than 12 black voices in Spokane locally Mm. that were for me and just show like these two women over and over and over, you know, gave them tons of time that were against me um, as if that was like the black voice, um, locally you know yeah for black women in general for those of you who haven't seen the documentary on netflix i would recommend checking it out after this interview but actually after reading rachel's book following myself watching the documentary i can definitely see where rachel's coming from and can easily identify the bias that was put into that documentary perhaps to avoid a pr nightmare which hopefully i'm not putting myself in right now but rachel her story is extremely heartbreaking and she does get into it a little bit in the documentary about how she was raised in a very oppressive and abusive family and her parents actually ended up adopting african-american children which rachel actually ended up protecting from a lot of harm in her upbringing and she consistently associated the oppression of her parents and the abuse of her parents with whiteness and she saw her freedom in relating to her siblings and their blackness. And that's just a little tidbit of part of her upbringing, but it is quite a traumatizing story, which is somewhat highlighted in the documentary, but you can definitely see that there's a bias towards it, that this is someone that we should have a negative attitude towards rather than actually hearing their story. And I think the media loses out on a lot when they do that because Everyone's story has some value to it and is worth considering even if you don't agree with it. Because at the end of the day, this is a person living a very real experience. And I think particularly in Rachel's story, she did not set out to expose herself or make her story a big deal. The context was rather unfortunate that she was outed by her birth parents in the midst of actually defending her adopted black sister in a sexual abuse case, which is definitely something to chew on. But for now, we'll hop back into the interview where we left off. And that's really not not the case. And so there, it wasn't just me being frustrated. I was also frustrated that those people had taken their time because they really cared and wanted um, that that side to be shown because they had not um, given a, a voice in the media. And they really were, you know, they showed up for the documentary film crew yeah. and did their... Um, bits and and you know were were cut out when I went to Antigua to help set up the NGO down there in 2016 and then when I went in 2017 to South Africa to speak um, both by invitation it was basically like a movement to uh, form a non-racial South African society because South Africa is still you know, even after apartheid, it's like with racializations by the government and kind of, you know, racism that comes mm-hmm. from that. And so um, my, the continuation or the attempts of of the continuation of my activism, you know, weren't shown. It just yeah. seemed like they kind of portrayed me as just kind of sitting in my house or something and just giving up on life. And right. there was just a lot that... <laughs> that got cut that I think would have been yeah. really interesting to people. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like that's it would, so. It would have given it that racial divide, right? If, right. If that's what they really wanted to show was the pros and the cons, and yeah. And I think it, ultimately, you know, I talked to a director about that. She was, she kind of um, just justified or defended her decisions just by the fact that she felt like my character on screen, per se, was <laughs> strong enough to kind of outweigh right. or offset all the opposition. And so that's kind of how she felt like she was balancing it. Some of the areas where Rachel has garnered a lot of respect for her situation are actually in countries such as the one she's mentioned, such as Antigua or South Africa. These countries have obviously very different histories when it comes to race, racial understanding, and cultural identity. And for them they saw Rachel's story as an opportunity to actually bring unity amongst racial groups. This story actually was very interesting to myself and my family, particularly my dad, as he grew up in Trinidad and Tobago as someone who is quite an ethnic mix, but actually doesn't have any African in his blood. And although he doesn't identify as black, he found a lot of acceptance in that community and actually was given some nicknames affectionately because he wasn't like, a typical mixed Trinidadian. And so now, as a result, he also feels like he knows the culture well enough now that he can represent them in a social influence role. And that community, although not in his blood, has become a major part of his cultural identity. The thing I find frustrating about that too is that this whole situation, it's like you were outed. This is not something that you chose to come out with and make a big scene about. Like, there's, there's no argument for you doing this for attention. And I think after everything was unfolding, and I think the thing that just really broke my heart was that you were in the middle of a situation that was so sensitive to your family and obviously involved people that you loved. And I think that that, that alone was enough for me to just be like, okay, who cares what people are saying about how she identifies? Like she's trying to live her life and, and defend her family and stand up for what's right. And and so I think it's right. the the full story of your upbringing and what's influenced you and even just how you felt when you were young, It to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I, yeah. I, I think you did a really good job of responding to what was otherwise a, I think, a, an issue that wasn't really dealt with with any sensitivity. And, and I think there's definitely a lot more compassion that was deserved. For those who still are unaware of the story of when Rachel Dozal was outed, essentially what had happened was she was in a court case actually against her biological older brother named Joshua, who had for many years been abusing Rachel's adopted black sister named Esther. Rachel acted as a witness to the case and she had also grown up being abused by her brother. Rachel's parents, however, were also part of the case defending their biological son and in an effort to do so, they tipped off the media that Rachel was not a credible witness, given that she was living her life as a black woman, even though she was born white. This tactic actually worked, and the sexual abuse case was dropped, leaving her sister still a victim to this day. Rachel has taken on the role of caring for the people who have been hurt in the wake of her parents' abuse and racism, and reading her book, you really get a full understanding of why the seeds were sown for her to respond the way she did. And the thing that makes this so unfortunate is that it wasn't her choice for 
her identity issues to go out into the public. It was her parents that put her on the spot. And as a grassroots journalist, this whole story to me is still an issue of black women's rights and the fact that there was a black woman who was exploited and hurt and someone who was adopted into a family that didn't treat her well. Rachel, on the other hand, recognized this injustice at a young age and knew she wanted to stand up for her sister. Her identity choices were never meant to be public, and there are a lot more complexities to Rachel's identity choices than what we can talk about in one podcast. So what do we do with the information that we had after this case? We made Rachel a national laughingstock, parodying her on SNL, while there still lived a victim that was in need of justice. Given the full context of just a bit of the story, I think the fact that Rachel identifies as black is the least of our concern and really points to a serious problem in our society. I don't know if this would have been in your plan or not, but do you think that you would have ever had an opportunity to share your story on your own terms? Or did you know that that would be something that people wouldn't really readily accept? Yeah, I, well, I knew that because race is such a contentious issue that it, it would really need to be carefully um, explained and nuanced. And I did plan to kind of at the end of my life write a book. Yeah. You know, having actually lived my life and that, you know, I didn't expect that it would be completely turned upside down and interrupted in the way that it was. Um, but I kind of, that's, that's just my personality and approach. I like to do things kind of quietly and humbly and um, not make a big scene. Yeah. Which, but <laughs> once the scene was made, then, and partly because I, I was in that, um, in that old court case mm-hmm. with, you know, involved in my sister's court case against our older brother um, for sexual assault and, Mm-hmm. Also, just because uh, the backlash was really affecting not just that case, because her case was ultimately dismissed and she still has never gotten her day in court and won't because yeah, now it's so horrible. with such limitations. But I was kind of on a mission to um, kind of run damage control, and I felt like the only ways to do that that made sense were um, serious forms of response, like the documentary, which unfortunately took over two years to film, let alone then the third year to come out. Um, the book, which took over a year to even get a single publisher (laughs) to print, you know, so then it took, you know, a couple of years to come out. Um, and then also, um, just, you know, kind of continuing my social media presence and mm-hmm. blocking and deleting all the negativity right. um, along the way and really trying to show with my actions that you know, this is who I am. Um, once again, you know, I'm still the same person I was in May of 2015. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing changed except for people's opinions and yeah. just to kind of move things, move the needle toward understanding because I really had hoped that if I could actually turn that around in time, then the DA would 
bring her, let her bring her case back or with support, yeah. you know, trying that case. Um, because I felt like if, if my credibility was restored, you know, then that would really help, um, yeah. her, obviously that was the whole right. reason her, her case was dropped. And also just with my kids, you know, they're, uh, social lives and my son and he was in middle school and then in, in high school in middle school, of course, when it happened, and then just kind of growing up as a teenager in the midst of that, because um, it hit when he was 13, so now he's wow. 17, Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Franklin, Yeah. and then Isaiah, it actually hit when he was 21 on his 21st birthday, and I was glad that he was done with high school, but at the same time, he had, he was finishing college and, you know, trying to apply for, um, law school and some other things so and I was one month pregnant when it all happened too so crazy like the decision of you know keeping the pregnancy and what do I you know just so I felt like I was just juggling so much and I was really trying to make the best decisions I had a lot coming at me I mean I had people wanting to do reality tv shows and uh <laughs> like feature films like fictional you know feature yeah. films about my life just different things that actually would have been money making because the documentary wasn't yeah you didn't get any any compensation from that yeah like hardly made anything on that I got like the offer was like so low that you know it was just it was just crazy so basically the the higher paying offers were more exploitative and of course yeah I didn't want any other fictional accounts out there let alone some kind of highly dramatized reality TV show that's just not my personality at all. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and yet I did I did want to encourage healthy debate on the topic because I felt like that was a contribution to the society, you know, and yeah. culture in general, human culture, and uh, on the subject of, of race and identity and just the differences between ethnicity and race and culture. And yeah. How do you know who you are and how are you born versus, you know, it's sometimes do you feel differently than you're born, et cetera. Right. So uh, yeah. I, I wanted to, you know, encourage that primarily for the mission of not validating my identity, but for the mission of questioning the race worldview and un- undoing white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I felt like that really has the opportunity to tackle uh, the race myth and which is which is really you know was built on the foundation of white supremacy so yeah I, you know I was just trying to like do all of that and and I'm not perfect and I don't I don't think that I did a perfect job of navigating the whole situation but I honestly did really try I kind of feel like society didn't didn't um hold up their end you know yeah. to some extent I feel like a lot of people just got caught up in the mockery and right. the drama and, um, you know, just the jokes yeah. and everything and didn't really um, fo- kind of have that conversation. I feel mm-hmm. like it was a missed opportunity. Like, I still, I still hope that it does happen because I yeah. think that opportunity still kind of lingers in my book being out there and um, to some extent the documentary, although the documentary avoided any academic yeah, conversation. You know, it's more of a heart strings piece than 
Right. Um, you know, just amputated all my answers. Basically, whenever I, she would ask me a serious question about race, I would give a thoughtful academic answer, and then um, she would just cut to me sitting there as if I didn't say anything <laughs> or whatever. And it's just like, really? Which um, is very funny because I think a lot of people don't recognize that you're you're literally a university professor like that's your background and you've studied right you know Africana and African-American culture and you probably have a better understanding of the history and the constructs than most people do right well and I've and I really lived a pretty well-examined life you know it's not like I'm just some fly-by-night you know culture appropriate or, or whatever yeah you know, all the different labels that were kind of like slapped on me had no bearing on who I actually am and the decisions that I've made so yeah I mean it, it was very frustrating but we continued to kind of just deal with that I mean my kids were kind of frustrated with how their parts of the documentary were edited too especially Franklin mm, yeah but um it is what it is I mean once it's out there yeah we didn't get to see it until it was on Netflix, and, probably. You know, being per- presented to the world. So. Yeah. Yeah. As my conversation with Rachel continued to evolve, I did have some things in my back pocket that I've been waiting to ask the entire time, particularly having to do with why she identifies as Black. Is there a difference between Black and African American? And just kind of getting into more of the nitty gritty of what her identity means to her. And I just want to note that it took up to this point in the interview for me to feel comfortable asking her about that directly because I wanted her to feel accepted and comfortable and that I understood her story. And you can see the difference in the way that she responds to me when I ask this question, even some of the additional facts that she provides in the context of the situation because I was already asking her questions and being empathetic to her situation and being well-educated with her background. And I think any person we talk to or interact with is deserving of this. If there's something we don't understand about them, that's not the thing that we ask right away. It's not the thing that we attack. It's the thing that we discover about them in their time. Now, just to clarify, um, so I'm from Canada, so we have kind of a little bit of a different understanding. Actually, like quite a bit different, which is funny because we're so close to each other. But for people from Canada, what... Um, what is the difference between being black and being African-American and how, how do you identify between those two? So historically in, and yeah, Canada has a different, different history. So it's no surprise that things are a little bit different there. Um, so African-American is a, is a term within a window, like a window of time, basically after the Emancipation Proclamation, when people of African descent became um, citizens in the United States, then the term African-American, you know, there were previous terms like Negro and colored and, um, you know, and then it was like, okay, African-American, what are we going to call this group? And so it was just kind of like a label um, that was ascribed and in black studies, there's kind of an idea that not until there is full equity and justice um, for the wrong that's been done in the United States uh, toward um, African Americans will everybody be able to just say, I'm an American. 
Right. You know okay. what I mean? Because it's like without a, a distinguishing yeah. <laughs> uh, piece. So also in in black studies, it's it's kind of um, part of this, the whole uh, field of Africana studies deals with terms. And black was a term that was um, kind of taken out of the small small case B, lowercase b, into an uppercase B okay. uh, during the black power movement to signify, like, you know, a title as opposed to just the color. So right. small case B is like a black crayon or, you know, a black couch or something like that. But to be black means that you have a certain reverence for the continent of Africa and the people of Africa and the history you know, really human history that goes back to um, the African origins of human civilization and, right. and the awareness and consciousness that we all go back to a black mother. Right. Um, and so it's kind of like owning that and also um, kind of saying, like, I ascribe more to black philosophy than to Plato and Aristotle and you know, totally, European yeah. side. So like, you know, David Walker and Sojourner Truth and um, Du Bois and, you know, like all, just all of the great philosophers um, who have come out of um, a background of, you know, struggle and have made great contributions to philosophy. So I guess, you know, I just have found more of a home in philosophical and cultural world of blackness versus whiteness. And in America, there's really that color line still exists. Like you have to pick a side. You're either Mm -hmm. black lives matter or you're, you know, all lives matter, which is code for, you know, pro-police or, you know, it doesn't really mean all lives matter. It's like black lives matter actually means all lives matter. And Mm but when you really, yeah, to that. You know, but there there are sides on all of these issues, and I, throughout my entire life, have just instinctively um, felt like you know an internal response to mm-hmm. uh, what would be described as more of the black side than the white side, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of you know why I identify as black, but not African American, mm-hmm. and that. Of course, isn't understood readily by everybody. Yeah, and so a lot of people still say, "Well, she, you know, pretended to be African American." <laughs> yeah, not um, quite the story. Yeah, and I right. think it also why I, you know, kind of walked away from that interview because he's like, "Are you African American?" I was just like, "Ah, you know, <laughs> why is this question coming out of the blue yeah. for an interview that wasn't even about that?" And I don't even have time to talk to this guy about the difference between. <laughs> black and african-american right now you know yeah and i think like Um, your story too i think you came from a background that was very insular and very suppressive and you know and i think you you grew up with actual african-american siblings and now you're raising african-american boys in black america and i think that that's understated a lot too and i think just yeah even growing up i think it was so fascinating for me to read about your upbringing in Montana. And I think all that people really need to know at the end of the day is that it was your parents that, you know, 
slandered you in this whole case with um, your siblings. And and for me, I was like, okay, well, obviously, you know, they're not supportive people that <laughs> care about their daughter and how she has gone through life. But when I was reading your well, book... Well, either one of their daughters. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> you know, because it was her case and then they threw me under the bus, but yeah. I was just wondering because you you were in a faith-based home, faith-based with quotation marks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... I was just wondering, did you ever feel, because when you were young, I mean, you, you drew that self-portrait with the colored crayon and did you feel, did you feel confused when you were young or did you just know that you knew how you felt and did that make you feel angry towards God or did you just kind of fantasize about escaping from your parents' oppression of who you really were? Well, I, I think, you know, two things that are really true about that is that I, I've always had a really solid sense of self, mm-hmm. um, but that's all, that's also always been at war with outside input. So from being a young child and getting just this input from my parents and then later kids at school and other people that I was just wrong, you know, basically like the way I felt was wrong, the things that I loved were wrong, um, you know, why Why would I be so weird to think that black is beautiful? You know, for example, yeah. or, you know, why would I draw myself with the brown crayon instead of the peach crayon? Like, that was weird. That was wrong. That was not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, something was, you know, and, and being exercised, you know, being even, I mean, to the extreme where it's like she's demon-possessed and we need to yeah. bring the demons out of our eyes. So, like, just things, and that really... Um, that's been hard because I've had to, for my entire life, fight against like this almost evidence that hmm. the way I think and feel is not okay. Yeah. Because you know, everybody's shoving all this, you know, like this feedback loop is telling me, um, no, you know, don't be like that. Don't think like that. Don't feel like that. That doesn't yeah. make sense to us. And at the same time, I have to still be me. Like, I can't feel a different way. Like, I can't be um, what people want me to be because then that's not me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think because I understood very early on that that was something I was going to have to almost hide, like that two-ness or that like, kind of double consciousness of, like, this is myself, but then this is what the world thinks of me. Right. And so how do I navigate that and I've tried I tried as a child to just repress suppress you know I mean that's kind of what I also associated with whiteness per se was because my parents you know embodied all the things that that they were um, teaching me about their culture that I did not want to um, live with you know like I felt like I was I didn't belong there I was rejected by that culture um and so I just learned to hide it to not express it and that was going to be like the way to make it but Hmm. you can only do that so long and I think the the older you get and the more um you kind of mature in your understanding of self-love and um your desire to just live you know and be in the world then you kind of have to 
to express yourself. And yeah. um, I think that just learning to find that personal agency and to be myself boldly and openly, I mean, it took a long time. Yeah. And I think that that's <laughs> where people are like, well, in these pictures, you look like this. And I'm like, yeah, and I was 12. <laughs> yeah. Know? I right. did not know, you know, I, I felt like I could not be, like I did not have the right to be who I am. Mm-hmm. And, but, and when I finally, you know, those pieces came together for me, then I felt free. You know, I really felt hmm. like that was my be- living my best life. And, you know, then that, and then now that's over in a sense because everybody is once again like decided that I'm not okay and that's not <laughs> like like yeah. I should have done things different and I should be living different and it's just like you know but you don't know the whole story and you also don't know my soul and you know how I feel every day and yeah. I think in a world where we are so black and white, it's interesting that we can agree with so much fluidity and identity in other areas, but we have such a hard time accepting Rachel's story that she identifies as black. If we are to be the same type of people that don't judge or question someone who identifies as a different sex than what they were at birth, who are we to say that Actually, Rachel, you should just say that you appreciate black culture. You should just say that you are influenced by Africa and those thinkers and that society. And sure, maybe your whole world revolves around black people, but you're still white. You could never use the same terminology with a transgender individual because that is simply a double standard. Tell me if you agree. I would love to hear your opinions, your tweets, your clapbacks. Tweet me at Josiah Podcast about this episode. And I would love to start that discussion because to me, that is how the situation seems on my ends. But for now, let's jump back in. We have to kind of go towards the culture and philosophy and the space where we can grow and, and evolve because otherwise we're just dying. You know, and yeah, mm-hmm. it's like either grow and evolve or you die. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, for one, I have kids, I can't die right. And, you know, it's <laughs> like I, I know that that would make a whole lot of people more comfortable, but. Well, I don't want you to die, so please stick around. <laughs> <laughs> I think you made a really good point in your book, too. You reference, you know, Michael Jackson going through his own transformation, which he didn't necessarily explain to people. But you also talk about even OJ saying, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And then, you know, your your whole scandal came out at the same time as the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing. And it's just, it's so funny to me because there's all these things that are accepted. What do you think it was about your story that made it so different? Well, I think the, the, yeah, it was, <laughs> so many things that made it so different. So Caitlyn Jenner <laughs> has like, been um, glamorous coming out that you could have, you know, on the cover of Vanity Fair and lingerie, but, you know, the femininity was validated, TV piece that preceded that, um, and, you know, it, it just was, like, very well taken care of and guarded from any kind of sabotage or questioning or, you know, invalidation, and then, 
I, you know, and Caitlin Jenner, of course, being a millionaire and having the means to, <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to, you know, choose that particular form of coming out. And so for me, it, you know, I'm nobody in the big context of things like in the moneyed world and didn't have any savings or even, you know, great job security or anything, let alone some kind of upper class status. Sure. And then, also, it's just the race issue. Like, we really haven't evolved on that topic yet. There, there was no, like, there's a transgender group right. that is also affected by Caitlyn Jenner coming out. And so, the things that people say about Caitlyn are going to be reflected on how transphobic or trans accepting people are within the gender um, aspect of identity. My apologies that the sound is so bad at this part. It does come back to normal, just so everyone's aware. But essentially, she was saying that Caitlyn's coming out was very glamorized. She had her news story break. She's a millionaire. She had her Vanity Fair spread in her lingerie. And Rachel Dolezal is a nobody. And it's also in the space of race, where there's not really a community of people that feel like they're a different race, whereas there is a transgender community. So... Those are some factors that played in Rachel's answer to my question. But for me, really, it just revealed how binary, not just America, but a lot of the world is when it comes to the issue of, of race and that people still believe that there's some kind of like biological reality um, in race as opposed to the scientific facts are that don't meet the zoological requirements for separate races, you know, in the human race. Um, We're 99% the same, and to so-called, you know, black people and could be more different than a, you know, nominally black and nominally white person, you know, physically, on a physical basis, could have a greater um, difference in their DNA. So there's just this whole... uh, that's why we call it a social construct because right. people have constructed yeah. this idea that there's so much difference that then we can expect this group to behave this way and this group is going to always behave this way. And if somebody deviates from that, they are just the outlier, but we're going to keep our ideas about the groups the same. Rachel goes on to explain that this idea of putting people in groups and racializing characteristics of people is actually the root of prejudice. And we put people in those boxes and expect them to act a certain way because they belong to a certain group. That's where racism is birthed from and our assumptions about others. You must be a, you know, Republican, white supremacist, whatever, whatever. Or you must be a Democrat. You must be, you know, like a Yeah. Uh, and so then we, we just assume what type of music people listen to, what type of food people eat, how they parent their kids. I mean, just this whole host of behaviors are associated with the idea of race and and that our origins are somehow so different that yeah. um, it was it, you know, it's like comparing an apple to an orange as opposed to, you know, comparing two oranges. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and I was talking to my son, Franklin, you know, who, during the documentary, they didn't, you know, show this part, but he was kind of talking to me one time about, like, why does this happen with race first instead of gender? Because really there's more physical, um, proof per se, you know, like there are a lot of people that are ethnically indeterminate, but 
don't necessarily like they could pass one or the other. So black sure. or white or Latino or Native or Native, like what are you? You know, like that kind of a question. And um, people feel the need to put that person in a box, but uh, you know they could be racially ambiguous, and you know they could just tell you like this is what I am, and which is you know, <laughs> right. kind of my thing. You know, like I just start who I am and then it really starts racializing everything like oh yeah well that makes sense like look at her butt like uh-huh. look at her nose like look at her you know and, and that's happened to have, me for sure yeah <laughs> right and then people really see what they believe you know what I mean and yeah. it's not really like believing and seeing it's like they 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 really start seeing all these characteristics and behaviors um, that they fit into that box and that's why a lot of people it's blew their minds that I had white parents. You know, even some of my colleagues were like, she was like, she made me feel not black, you know? As far as, you know, my my political stance or my, you know, kind of right. radical activism and things like that. So, um, I guess, you know, just that, that whole world view is very much solidified and that was really the commentary when yeah. my com- my exposure really or and it wasn't really even like a coming out or an out it was like it was it was wrapped up in moral terms you know she's a liar she's a con she's a fraud yeah. you know as if it was a character flaw um as opposed to Caitlyn Jenner is just now you know finally owning you know after 60 years of life you know owning yeah the true part of herself you know so if, if it would have been like wow even though nobody really knew this about her white parents or her past, like she had the courage to really own <laughs> her true self throughout life, even though she knew she was risking ultimate rejection on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, that could have been the story. Yeah. And and it wasn't. And even Vanity Fair, like they, they baited me with, I mean, that was another piece that I did um, early on because they kind of said, like, we want to do for you what we did for Caitlyn Jenner and, you know, really show your side and um, celebrate your authenticity. And and they didn't. Like, after I did the interview and the photo shoot, it was like a little teeny piece inside. It wasn't a cover, for starters. It wasn't... It was it was a very short piece, and it was titled True Lies, you know. Oh, and it wow. Was just, uh, <laughs> and it had the worst photos from the whole shoot like oh, you know there's like don't smile these are glamour shots and then they try to like look me make me look angry or <laughs> they chose the shots where it's kind of like squinting in the sun and different things and so it was it was really the opposite I mean even the same publication treating my story in a complete you know 180 yeah. direction from what they did for Caitlin and again I think a lot of it has to do with privilege you know when it comes down to like class and money and Mm -hmm. I didn't have like what could I actually do for Vanity Fair for anybody for that matter you know I don't I don't I'm a single mom you know I'm trying to to hold all the little pieces of my life together that have been shattered around the world and you know keep our family stable and try and find work and um nobody really cared about that you know it was just like oh let's make fun of her haha mm-hmm. it'll be a good little you know sensational buzz for a minute and then we can kind of all get back to our lives after her mm-hmm. destroyed um 
But I think by doing that, I think it made people feel comfortable about their own binary ideas of race. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So it kind of, you know, reaffirmed the neat little boxes of black and white. Right. By shaming me. And it's interesting, like, looking at that as American culture, as opposed to what your reception was in a country like South Africa, where you're actually asked to help break down these racial barriers. And it just goes to show, like, America has this really twisted idea. And I think it's it's rooted in its history. But there's such a contrast between South Africa and America, even, in your reception. Right. And even in, yeah, and in the Caribbean, in Antigua. Yeah. Which, of course, that's... Not super surprised. I mean, even Rihanna was supportive of me. You know, I mean, people from outside of America and especially from kind of more open-minded countries, like uh, countries in the Caribbean, like that's that's definitely like this is somebody's life. Like, you know, that's cool. That's yeah. cool that they chose a different path or that they're a little bit unique and. Like, what's wrong with that? What's the big deal? And is yeah. the goal to eventually get out of America when you can? <laughs> you know, I would love to. In about 14 months, I'll finally have the opportunity to leave Spokane when my son graduates high school. Right. And, you know, like, I'm, I want to kind of keep the two youngest kids close together and, you know, in their bond and their relationship. But on the other hand, I really might have to leave the country to resume my career. Right. So I'm looking at universities that are not, that are outside of America for, for teaching or, you know, possibly relocating um, somewhere where my time and talents are valued and where I'm going to be seen for my resume and not for all the tablet gossip. Yeah. One thing I mentioned earlier on as I was preparing this episode was that Rachel sometimes goes by the name Nkechi Diallo, which is actually her legal name now. She had a name change during the time the Netflix documentary was being filmed. And I wanted to ask her a little bit more about that. Obviously, she wasn't offended that I was calling her Rachel. So I wanted to know what Nkechi meant. And I think that that was something that was unanswered in the documentary. So that's where I went next. However, just as a disclaimer, Rachel texted me after the interview and she said, I meant to add that I still go by Rachel publicly since I was unsuccessful at shifting public perception. I just keep that name for my public name. And I go by my private life as much as possible by Nkechi in an effort to carve a distinction between the public ideas about me and my daily life like doctor's appointments and kids' sporting events where I don't want someone announcing me by Rachel Dolezal as the mom who brought spaghetti to the football team dinner. So definitely makes sense. Um, for Rachel to do that, but here's more of her insight on the name change from Rachel to Nketchi. Yeah, how have things changed for you since you've done the name change? Because that's kind of where we left off in the Netflix documentary. So do you still, like, are you trying to, like, fully, was that an identity thing? Like, I don't want to be associated with Rachel Dolezal because now things have changed for me and I need to move forward. Um, do people call you in catchy all the time or what does that look like for you? The, um, filming of my name change was kind of in the middle, but they actually moved it to the closing of the documentary. They kind of just used that as the closing. Um, so the sequence of it isn't really accurate in the film, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I, and I did that. So I changed it in 2016, just a year after everything 
went down because I had been applying for so many jobs and was getting rejected, I was feeling like just because of my name on the resume, you know, and it's like, oh, no, we don't want that Um, PR nightmare or whatever people were probably thinking. And so I wasn't getting interviews. And so when I did change my name to Nkechi Diallo, I did start to get some interviews, but then it, you know, you still have to show up and then it's still you. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. So um, I never did get a job to this day. I still have not been hired, um, which was really tough to because I'm pretty stubborn and I really wanted to push through and, and get a job. Um, but I had to kind of create my own job with my art talent and also my hair braiding and, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of scrapping around for different side, side gigs here and there. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that is what it is. I mean, I, one of my heroes, Malcolm X, um, always said like if they don't give you a job make a job totally which is you know it's a little harder said than or harder done than said or whatever you Mm -hmm. know but um it's it's what we fall back on are just like our skill sets and what what can you do if nobody is going to hire you you know then who are you and it kind of brought me back to my resourcefulness and my creativity and the fact that, you know, I do have my degree in fine art. I have a, you know, graduated summa cum laude with a master of fine arts degree from Howard University. And that, um, was based on a whole, um, series of scholarships from undergrad to grad school for my art. So, wow. you know, that, um, the fact that my art really kind of died during my my marriage and my life in the Pacific Northwest where there's not very much appreciation for <laughs> um, collecting art and supporting um, art, you know, that it's like I had to kind of bring that back. And I don't sell much art here in Spokane, Washington, but most of my art that sells is, you know, within the United States or Canada. Yeah, my my art, it, it has been good in some ways to return to that because I've really needed to express myself and find my voice again, and art is a kind of a quiet way to do that, and that's really kind of my my voice right now. And Yeah, uh, and I think your pieces are so forward. versatile and tactile, and it's such a unique, all, all her pieces are incredibly unique and intricate, and I think it's it's even more valuable because I I feel like you're going to be in history books one day. I I would say like a little a little hot tip for collectors, but you know as long as I'm in Spokane, so it's going to be the next fourteen months. My prices are probably going to be the lowest that they ever will be. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Truly, where I have to scrape by in that kind of starving artist um, mode. So, you know, they're they're literally prices priced at what I sold my art for at, as an 18 and 19 year old in college, you know? So awesome. yeah, I do hope that, that one day there'll be a larger welcoming and I can you know have some exhibitions and things like that. So yeah, that would be great. Yeah, wow. totally. Well, I, I hope for that for you as well. Thank you. Well, this really does yeah. mean so much to me and I really hope to paint you in a great light and hopefully bring some positive discussion around you. And I think, uh, yeah, you have, 
you have really inspired a lot of people. So please hold on to your hope and <laughs> hopefully we'll stay in touch as well. Well, thank you so much for, you know, for having me and for, um, you know, caring about the whole conversation and adding your piece to that. I hope this interview with Rachel Dolezal leaves you with some questions of your own about how you think about identity and the people around you. I think for most people, all they had to do in this situation was swipe past a news story about Rachel and push it aside as craziness, labeling her as a cultural fad. How easy it is to undermine the fact that in defending her adopted sister, Rachel now has been unhirable, her children have been affected by the scandal surrounding her, and the case against her abusive family was flat out dropped. All because her parents outed her for an identity that she believes lays deep inside of her. I can only hope that perhaps this podcast sheds some light on the humanity and heart behind this fascinating individual. Please share this episode if there's someone that you think should hear it. Rachel's artwork and biography in full color are available at racheldolezal.com and shipping on all original artwork is $10 for both the US and Canada. Her documentary is still on Netflix called The Rachel Divide. By the way, I'm hoping to put out a season bonus for this episode of myself sharing how I even came into contact with Rachel, which is a story of its own and a miracle that I prayed for. Luckily, some legal issues she was facing were resolved in late March of this year, which allowed her to do this interview with me. But I am the first journalist to chat with her since the fiasco, which I'm pretty proud of. If you're new to the show, please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe. It helps me out a lot. Check out my other episodes while you're at it and share this on your social media and reach out to me. That is my favorite thing you can do about this podcast. You can tweet or Instagram me at Josiah Podcast. And I'm also on Facebook as Anticulture with Josiah Sinanin. My website is josiahsinanin.com slash podcast. And there is a contact form if you'd like to contact me via email. If there's someone you know that would be interested in the show's content or perhaps would be a good future guest, I would love to know. And I love chatting with listeners who've come upon the show. It's been awesome to discover complete strangers that have found my series and have really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for sticking with me through another season. This has been such a fun journey for me. I was able to design a logo and get some really high profile guests that I really wanted to talk to. So it's been really fun for me. And this is totally a side project. And I hope I can come back with a third season very soon. So once again, thank you so much for letting me be your host. My name is Josiah Sinanen, and this is Anti Culture.